Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 13th, 2016, and you know what that means? Do you know what that means? It is Friday the 13th. Bad luck everywhere. Not really. That's a myth. We all know why it's a myth, though, don't we? Because of the history segment and the Knights Templar and, ah, death, right? Yeah. Um, but just in case, just in case, when you go to the bathroom today or you go into your closet or a dark room, just make sure Jason Voorhees isn't around. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, what are we going to talk about today? Well, it's Listener Council Q&A today. This is all of the questions that have been answered by Listener Council members this month. It's not all the questions I have sent to council members. This was a high piking month, uh, even though it's ending in the mid-month. They all got their questions middle of last month. So this four-week period, we had quite a few pikers. So we only actually have four council members pitching in today. And two of the, uh, actually, uh, yeah, and uh, we do have five questions because Nick Ferguson stepped up and did two to pull some piker slack. And I'm going to handle one today as well. So what are we going to talk about today? Nick Ferguson has a question he's answering on cuttings, whether you're cutting vegetables to freshen them up, cutting plants to put them in the ground and make roots out of them or whatever. What's the best way to do that? It actually does matter. Um, next, we have a question that's loaded for Stephen Harris on a lot of alternative energy ideas and mythologies and things like that. And Stephen is just going to, in his own unique way, tear it apart. In a very nice way, though, actually, compared to some of the the ways I've seen him do this in the past. But, you know, quite direct. And it's, it's going to be interesting. And the reason we went ahead and had this question answered and gave the answers to because there's a lot of mythology about, oh, you just do this, or oh, you just do that. Uh, set up a steam engine with a generator, and boom, you'll have power forever just by throwing acorns in it or something. Um, and, and the problem with that is there's a lot of people with these preconceptions, and if you ever actually need to produce energy, well, those preconceptions are getting your way. Next up, we have a, a, a Darby Simpson is going to talk about fencing riparian areas. Then uh, round two for Nick Ferguson, a question about drainage on a small homestead and livestock stocking densities and, frankly, getting in over your head and why you might need some help from a professional when you start getting into trying to do too much at once, especially on a smaller property homestead. And then I'm going to end things up talking about dealing with non-venomous, I'll be very, very clear, non-venomous snakes that show up around your house. and You want to get rid of them and you don't want to hurt them and you're not like me, and you're not willing to go out there and risk maybe getting bit by a black snake or something like that. It's really not going to hurt, but it makes you bleed. You want to get rid of them. You don't want to hurt them. You don't want to get bit. What do you do? How do you handle it? If you're going to relocate them, how far do you got to take them before they you know, don't just show back up eating your chicken babies or your eggs or something like that? So should be a great Friday show. Before we get into it uh, with your questions, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1786. And in this year that was the episode, we have three to pick from from Alex Shrugged at tspwiki.com. We have one language to rule them all. We have Shay's Rebellion and a new constitution. We have Frederick the Great is gone. Old Fritz Frederick the Great has died of pneumonia. Um... 
I had a hard time choosing between one language to rule them all and Shay's Rebellion in a new constitution because both of them are very interesting to me. But I'm going to read one language to rule them all. And if you want to know about Shay's Rebellion in a new constitution, I recommend you read today's posting at TSP Wiki on the year 1786. It'll be a link in the show notes. Because it does dispel, I think, this mythology that like once the Revolutionary War was over, everything was just great here. Uh, there was a lot that had to be worked through in the forming of a new nation. One language to rule them all. While living in India, William Jones has noticed that certain phrases in English appear in Sanskrit. He begins a comparison of Sanskrit, German, Latin, and Greek. The words and the grammar were too similar to be coincidence. His findings suggest a common root, a common language, an ancient tongue. He then theorizes that a possible invasion of an Aryan race would influence local language. Jones has no evidence to back up such a claim, and in later years, the invasion theory will lose credibility, but the idea of a proto-Indo-European language will live on. My take by Alex Shrug. The idea of an original proto-Indo-European language is an educated guess. I think it's a good guess, but there's no written evidence of it ever existing. Scholars estimate that the original language is spoken around 3500 BCE, before the Common Era, That is also an educated guess. Some, somewhat similar to a reasonable weather forecast. Take your umbrella anyway. I have noticed similarities between Norse, German, and Hebrew. My religious teachers tell me Hebrew was the original language, but my college professors say, no way. I'm nodding politely to my religious teachers, siding with my professors on this one. I'm not sure who did what first, but it sure is interesting. I think language is a total, a totality is interesting to me. And the reality is we, we must, as humans, realize there probably is a single root to all language. And what that root is is probably so far away from where we are with all the different languages today that it's hard to even conceive of. But think about this. There were people in the Americas for long before the Europeans came here that had languages that were decidedly different in many ways than the languages of the Europeans that came here speaking English and Spanish and French. Um, but they did have very complex, very descriptive languages. Now, those languages, as, as different as they seem, actually must have common roots. We all come from a single species. And as the species moved forward in its ability to speak with each other, it, it bifurcated. And what, what I've actually always thought was really amazing is... It is really the children that evolve languages, especially during the merging of cultures. Um, if you think about it, if you brought somebody to here today from 250 years ago, they could understand the language, but a lot of it would be confusing to them. And I don't just mean things like iPhone, right? Um, because there's technologies that they didn't exist. So there was no word for them. But even if you just stuck to common ideas and common concepts, many, much of the way we speak today, even though we're still speaking English, is far different than just 250 years ago, let alone 2,500 years ago. And there's a great book you might want to read. In fact, a whole series of books by a guy named Piers Anthony. And I don't like everything the guy writes. He's a, he's a sci-fi, weird kind of thing going on with some of his books. But he wrote a series called the Geodacy series. And the first one is called Isle of Women. And in Isle of Women, you take real historical events and you take this narrative of these, these, these characters that are constantly reincarnated at different times in history that carry on kind of the same traits and the same concepts. And 
that keeps like a continuity through these different times in history. And it starts out when like humans are like proto-humans and it ends up in a dystopian future. But there's a point in the book where uh, one of the characters is captured and taken as a slave uh, and he and one of the women that take him as a slave and it's not like a like a woman group that, that sounded wrong a woman that is, that is a, a, a citizen of the nation that took him as a slave which would be more like a tribal thing um, have children and he feels like he's slow compared to the people that have taken him in it's one of these slave things where you're not like chained down you just become part of the group and you get amalgamated in eventually so he takes his wife they have kids and the children are intermingling Children of captured, children of mixed relationships, children of like the, the, the this this nation's actual kids, and as the children talk, they evolve the language. That's how I think all languages actually get evolved. It's it's by the intermingling of different cultures and ideas and concepts, and it's mostly done by our children, which just makes sense because in the words of the song, "Hokey or not, the children are the future." Indeed. Um, and that can either be very encouraging or discouraging, depending on which ones you're looking at at any given time. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com to learn more. Fortress Defense Consultants offers tactical training including rifle, pistol, tactical shotguns, specialized classes for women, force-on-force -force engagement training, and you can even do customized training with them. They will also travel to your location for larger groups. Find out more at fortressdefense.com. With that, our first question is for uh, expert council member Nick Ferguson, and it is about um, cutting plant material and, and how to do it without basically screwing everything up. And with that, hey, Nick, take it away. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson calling in to answer another TSP expert council question. And this one is on a good technique for cutting plants like flowers, celery. And I'm going to add another category, woody stems. So things like flower, celery, which were specifically mentioned, soft things like that that aren't too fibrous should be cut at a 45-degree angle with a sharp blade or something like a razor blade, you know, box cutter, a knife, something like that. Never kitchen shears or scissors, like paper scissors, anything like that. The reason for that is that they have the the plant has structures in the stem kind of like tubes like straws that suck water up into the flower head or the rest of the plant. And this is the vascular system of the plant. If we crush it, then it can't get water and it wilts and nobody likes limp celery. Am I right? So we want to make sure we expose as much of that vascular system to water for absorption and also make sure that we don't crush it. Um, so let's talk about the woody stems. So branches, things like that, lots of people will smash woody stems with a hammer or rock. And I used to do it too because that's what I was taught. Well, it's wrong. You'll crush all the vascular system that would be useful for the plant to absorb that water, right? So instead, cut it at an angle with a knife, something sharp like that, or pruning shears. 
I really like to use a knife whenever I can. Even the pruning shears do put some pressure and crush on one side, and I don't like doing that. So if you can use a knife, use a knife. Um, but pruning shears are better than scissors. So then what you want to do after you've cut it at that 45-degree angle, then you split the stem once or twice down the end, you know, like you're looking down the end of it, just like you would a piece of firewood. You just need to go half an inch, maybe an inch or so. And what this does is it's going to expose more of that xylem. And that that's what the technical term for the tubes that transport water and minerals from the roots to the aerial parts of the plant. And the more that we expose, the easier it is for that plant to suck up water into the stem, which keeps it hydrated and alive for longer. So let's talk about a couple tips. You should always cut things in the morning when the plant is full of water and hydrated fully and the flowers will be at their peak. So if you're cutting flowers, then you always want to do that early morning before the sun gets on them, especially if there's dew on them. That's perfect. Another good trick is to, after you cut them, put them in water immediately. So have a bucket with you with water. Get them deep in water, like not completely submerged, but not just the little tip the end in water. You want, you know, five, six inches of water in there. So stick them in that uh, water immediately. And then when you take them back to wherever you're going to store them or display them, fill up a bucket with water and cut the stems under water instead of in the air. Because sometimes if you cut in the air, the plant will suck up some air into the stem and get a bubble stuck in there, which prevents water absorption. So, I suggest, you know, using that bucket, fill it up, cut it underwater, and then put it in, you know, take it out and put it in whatever container you're storing it or displaying it in. Um, and here's something cool. If you ever have wilted lettuce or celery, things like that in the fridge that you wanted to eat but didn't get around to, and you go and you pull out your lettuce and it's kind of wilty or just a little bit wilted and it's just enough to turn you off of it and you're not going to eat it, well, don't throw it away. Cut a thin slice off of the bottom where the roots would be and completely submerge it in warm water, just like lukewarm room temperature water, not cold, not hot. And the warm water will actually move faster and be absorbed into the plant's tissues faster than cold water will. And sometimes all it takes is like five minutes before the veggie turns crisp and full of water again. Sometimes I'll just stick the whole head of lettuce in one of those eight cup big glass measuring bowl things with a handle, you know, those things. And I'll put a teaspoon or two of sugar in the water and a splash of lemon juice. I'll let it sit out on the counter for half an hour or so. And then I'll stick it in the fridge and just let it sit like that overnight. And the next morning, almost always, unless it was just too far gone, it'll be the crispest lettuce that you've ever seen. You'd be amazed at what that does for the taste of lettuce if it was wilted. It'll be crisp, juicy. It'll have a little bit more sweetness than usual. Um, the carbohydrates will help keep it alive and kind of bring it a little bit more back to life, which I think is a good thing. So there you go. Cut at a 45 degree angle if you can. Do that underwater. Put a little sugar and lemon juice in there to help keep the plants alive longer. Great question. Keep them coming. Crazy. To contact me, just send an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Have a great day and do good things. Great stuff as always from Nick. And please remember, Nick can answer all your questions about plant propagation, but he's also a good source for questions about general homesteading, livestock, livestock guardian dogs, um, 
Certainly permaculture questions in general for Nick. Good stuff all around, and he's doing a great job with his new podcast. You're going to want to check that out, definitely. Next question is for Stephen Harris, and it's about alternative energy, and why does Steve say to use solar, and it kind of takes Steve's concepts on solar out of context, and it's complicated and convoluted, and I didn't want to touch it, so I kicked it to Steve and got him to answer it. Here you go, a great Harris rant on the way. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel. Jack asked me to uh, address this question, and I'm not going to be mean in here. I'm just going to be direct, as I'm known to be, and uh, because everything in here is about dead wrong. So I didn't want to answer the question many other times. So the guy writes in and says, Jack, this is my third attempt to get Steve to answer a question. Come on, man. I seriously want to hear your perspective. Give it a shot. You're going to get it with both barrels, buddy. This question is for Steve Harris. Steve, I really like to know why you seem to have settled on solar being the best form of energy for self-sufficient power. Aren't I the guy who says I hate solar? Aren't I the guy who wants you to have a natural gas generator first? Aren't I the guy who wants you to have a good two to three months of food storage and power for your car to power your house for two to three months before you even consider the smallest solar cell there is? You're saying that I've settled on solar as being the best form of energy? I haven't. However, for most of the country, solar is not the best form of energy for energy independence. It's your only source of energy for energy independence. Remember, everyone, solar is the most expensive form of energy you will ever, ever buy. It is only good for energy independence, and then you are going to pay for it. But if that's what you want, then you can have energy independence with solar. So let's be clear on that. Additionally, what are your thoughts about wood combustion for our energy needs? What about wood combustion to create a steam-generated power? Okay, subsequently, what about small-scale hydroelectric? (laughs) Steam power is extremely inefficient. It's 5% efficient or less. There's a reason why we don't use it anymore, and that's because it stinks for efficiency. You asked about hydroelectric. Well, here's some history for you. When you had grain mills and you had small factories, they would locate next to high-flowing rivers with lots of water flowing, heavy grade, uh, so they could have, you know, a, a nice big headspace. That's the, the space from the bottom of the river to the top of the river. So they could have a lot of pressure, and they would locate next to these areas so they could have power for grinding grain or running a lathe or drill press or whatever. They were all powered by water. (coughs) As soon as steam power came along, they no longer needed to be located by water. They could be located more strategically closer to their market or closer to their source of raw materials. As soon as electric motors came along, they got rid of steam power and went with electric motors to run their factory wherever, however they were. That's the history of things. Steam power got bypassed centuries ago for electric motors because of its high degree of inefficiency. Uh, additionally, let's see, where am I? I asked this question because uh, the sun's energy has been the primary source available. Not the primary source, buddy. It's the only source 
for life on Earth. And thus it seems that eons of evolution has most likely optimized the capture and conversion of solar energy. In other words, man-made photovoltaic cells will probably never be as efficient as chloroplast. That's the part of the, the plant that is with photosynthesis that converts sunlight and water and carbon dioxide into physical pieces of the plant and energy and uh, glucose. Right? I'm thinking in terms of embodied energy here. Completely, totally incorrect. I have seen advanced photovoltaic cells not made with silicon that were up to 68% efficient. And I had done the calculation myself. And I got a whole thing I'll be doing on this in the future. But for right now, no, chloroplasts are not going to be more efficient than solar photovoltaic cells. The current 18 to 25% uh, efficient cells uh, there are chloroplasts and some plants that are more efficient than these. However, there are photovoltaics that will be in the future that are dramatically more efficient than chloroplasts in a plant. He writes, furthermore, energy in the form of photosynthesized carbon is much more readily available. Yeah, it's literally falling off the trees. Literally, okay? I like biomass energy. Uh, he says it's inexpensive and enduring, so why not forget about solar panels and focus on heating your home with wood? Hey, people heat their home with wood all the time, from wood pellet stoves to wood stoves, until your wonderful Obama EPA came by and made most of the brand new uh, cooking stove, stoves illegal, and they have to redesign them. So what about using wood for cooking your meals? Hey, I sell rocket stoves, a whole selection of them, uh, one that you can use inside with a chimney to ones that you have to use outside that use very, very little wood. They're at Rocket Stove, R-O-C-K-E-T-S-T-O-V-E, 1234.com. Uh, so you can cook your wood there if you want an old-fashioned wood stove. It's going to heat up your house a lot, and you got to start a fire, get the fire going, even if you just want to boil a kettle of water. So electricity is still a lot better for boiling water or natural gas or propane. So what about producing electricity with wood? Yes, I know you're a proponent of gasification, but what of these other seemingly more simple means? Uh, like I said, steam steam power is extremely inefficient. Extremely. You are not going to do it. There's only one person on the planet, or was the one person in the United States making steam engine, and that is Mr. Brown. It's called Brown's Energy Solutions or Brown Steam Engines. You can go Google it. It's like two to three thousand dollars for a three kilowatt steam engine, and that doesn't include the alternator, and it sure as hell does not include the boiler. And the boiler is a complex thing, and he doesn't make the boiler. There's not a boiler you can buy. you got to go out there, and you got to make one on your own, which will probably cost more than the steam engine itself. And then you'll be feeding wood like crazy just to get the thing to work. Uh, let's see. I know you're a proponent of gasification. Yes, I am. If you want to run a generator with wood, go to knowledgepublications.com. Click on where to start. Get hydrogen gas generator for vehicles and engines, volume three and four, and it'll show you how to make a gas generator out of uh, a, bar a barrel, a metal barrel, a trash can, 
uh, a stainless steel salad calendar, and a few other things. It is a great book on how to simply make a wood gasifier for running a generator. Hydropower 2 seems to be relatively simple and readily available even without significant slope or perennial streams. And you are completely 100% wrong. <laughs> without significant slope. You've got to be kidding. It is headspace. It is the height of the fall of the water that completely dominates whether or not you are going to have hydroelectric power. Water flowing by is not a lightsaber. I mean, it's like saying, I'm going to capture the power out of everyone in the world taking a piss. Okay? Water, you know, it falling three feet into the toilet. You're not going to do it. Even with 8 feet or 10 feet or 12 feet of head, you still need hundreds of gallons of water per minute in order to make even a few hundred watts of power. Go online, just do hydropower calculator. There will be a bunch of them. You can type in your headspace. You can type in your gallons per minute, and it will tell you what you can reasonably harvest from this. And it's generally not much. Hydropower is awesome. It is like gold. When you find gold, it's awesome, but it's very, very hard to find. Hydropower is only available and good in very few and select places around the United States. So when you got it, it's great. When you don't, it sucks. It's just a little stream flowing by you. It ain't going to work. Thank you for your contribution to the community. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. I love this community. I love contributing back. Even when someone annoys me and writes me three times in a row, I came on and I answered your question. I hope you didn't take it too seriously, and I think you hopefully understood what I said. This is Steve Harris for the Extra Panel. Get all the stuff I've done with Jack, all my free shows, all my free learning at Stephen1234.com. Thank you. Next question is for full-time farmer Darby Simpson on uh, property management, specifically with, with uh, riparian areas and protecting those during wetter periods of time and still being able to effectively graze the property. Darby, take it away. Hello there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I'm answering a question about uh, purchasing a property that has a small seasonal stream running through it. And uh, the, the owner is thinking that this valley appears to have some grazable area during the mid to late summer when it's a bit drier. And he wants to know, um, you know, what, what the uh, requirements are to protect the area from pudging when the valley floor is saturated. And he's also concerned about protecting the water and the, the water quality and things of that nature. And is just wondering what all the, uh, the general guidelines would be that should be followed um, he's considering, uh, grazing cattle, sheep, and possibly goats, and said that he might even put poultry into this area. Uh, we actually have some areas like this on our farm as well, and you do have to be very careful to not get in there and graze during the, the wet part of the season. I really can't stress that enough because particularly if you have larger animal like cattle, 
Um, if that valley floor is wet and they get in there, they're going to do a lot more harm than they are good. And uh, you're going to do more damage than you're going to gain value uh, you know, by grazing the animals when it's really wet. So you definitely want to be certain to only graze in the, the dry part of the summer. Uh, when the, uh, the valley floor is going to be able to support the weight of the animal without getting all mucked up. So, uh, something you definitely want to, uh, gonna consider here is if this valley floor area is actually in a, a, a larger fenced area, or if you're going to be going out of your way, um, you know, to, to fence it off by itself. That's something you really want to consider. Uh, if it's in a larger area, um, and you're, you're just kind of temporarily fencing it, uh, with what we would call internal fence, then using two or three high tensile wires around the area with, uh, maybe a gate on either end is really all that you're going to need, uh, particularly in terms of cattle. Now, if you're, you know, using smaller animals, then you're certainly going to want to put up more wires. Uh, that's particularly going to be true for goats. Um, the old adage is that if it won't hold water, it won't hold a goat. So be certain to put up enough wires to keep them out of there when it's going to be wet. Uh, really, you know, high tensile wire uh, is is very inexpensive. A good high quality, uh, you know, 200,000 uh, PSI strength wire is only going to cost you about two to two and a half cents a linear foot. And that's that's really high quality stuff that's made in the United States. So the wires, the cheap part, don't skip on it. If you need to put up more wires to keep more animals, smaller animals out, by all means do so. Um, you want to uh, make sure that, you know, all of the surrounding areas that are running off into this valley uh, are in grass. And that's really key for water quality and to make sure that you don't have uh, manure or pesticides or anything of that nature running off into the valley floor and getting into the stream. Um, if there is, you know, still water in the stream when you do have animals in there, obviously if those things are running off, then your animals are drinking those and that's not good for the overall health of the animals. Um, you, you also, with your fence, you want to make sure that it's electric. That's really the best way to manage animals to keep them out of there. Uh, so put a, you know, have a good charge on the fence and have them trained to that, that fence. And, uh, that's really going to help you manage them the best. Um, now if, you get in there, and it's it's a little more wet than than you would like, and some light pudging occurs. It's really not the end of the world. What I would tell you to do is to um, actually go back and overseed with uh, uh, some some annuals that the animals like to graze on. Some quick growing animals, uh, or annuals rather, uh, something like oats or uh, annual ryegrass. Um, uh, pearl millet, cow peas, things of that nature, all types of stuff that you could you could broadcast down in there at, that would probably take off uh, and and make use of that uh, good organic matter that's on that valley floor as well as the moisture that's down there, and you'd actually then you know have a, a, a much better uh, uh, amount of forage to come back and, and graze later in the summer going into the fall possibly. So something to, to consider there. Um, one thing I want to point out, though, is you, you didn't say on this property that you're considering purchasing how much acreage is in this valley or if it's contained within a larger area that you would fence off or that might already be fenced off. 
one thing I'd caution you about is, you know, what what's the cost of, to fence this off? If it's if it's off by itself, uh, you, you can have a pretty good expense to, you know, uh, fence this area out. And, you know, what's the bang for the buck there? How many grazing days are you going to get out of it? Um, you know, if it's in a larger area and you're already running external fence around the whole thing, then putting up a little bit of internal fence uh, for seasonal grazing is not a big deal. It's pretty inexpensive. But if you're looking at spending a drastic amount of money to fence this in so that you can graze it and you can only graze it part of the grazing season, that's something I would really caution you on and tell you to think about, you know, deeply before you spend the money on the fence uh, to to get it, you know, enclosed so that you can graze it. But anyhow, those are my thoughts on that. Uh, good luck to you and uh, good job thinking ahead about not grazing a wet area with animals in in the uh, you know the early part of the grazing season when you're you're going to tear things up and and do a whole lot of damage. So anyway, I uh, hope that helps you out. Uh, if I didn't cover something that you were want me to hit on, by all means, please feel free to send me an email and I will respond to it and answer any follow up questions that you have. Uh, if you would like to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com and read all of the free blog articles that are out there uh, on all things to do with pastured poultry, 100% uh, grass-fed cattle, uh, pastured pork, forest-raised pork. Um, we raise and sell these uh, to earn our livelihood at the farmer's market. So there's there's all kinds of good articles out there on production, marketing, uh, you name it, it's out there. Also, wanted to take a moment and, and mention we're going to be hosting a workshop on our farm in June. It's going to occur on June 10th and 11th, and it is going to be on producing and butchering poultry, pork, and rabbit. We're actually going to be butchering our uh, meal for one night when we butcher a pig. Um, we're going to have some guest speakers here. It won't just be myself. Uh, Patrick Roman from MT Knives will be here. Greg Burns from Nature's Image Farm in Ohio is going to be here. Rob Kaiser from Deliberate Living Systems will be here. Jesse Tetmeyer uh, from Perm Ethos will be here. Um, you can go out to my website. Again, it's DarbySimpson.com. There's a, uh, a blog post out there on the, uh, the, the workshop. There's a, a link to the itinerary page. You can take a look at that and, and see what all is included. But just to give you an idea, we've got about eight hours of classroom instruction. Uh, we've got about eight hours of on-farm instruction. Uh, everybody who attends is going to get a spiral-bound notebook of all the presentations that are given. It's got a lot of how-to photos. Uh, that's something that you'll have to take home and put on your bookshelf and reference later. Uh, we're going to be providing all the meals on Friday and Saturday with like really good local food. It's going to be all the meats uh, produced on our farm as well as uh, uh, local chemical-free uh, veggies and fruits, things of that nature. A good friend of mine that's a professional chef is going to be putting that together for us. And then, of course, we're going to have a couple nights of hanging out around the campfire enjoying some uh, cold, uh, frosty adult beverages, and it'll all be capped off with a, a barter blanket. So anyhow, if you'd like to learn more about that, you can. Just go out to uh, DarbySimpson.com and check it out. I hope to see you here. Uh, and just, uh, oh, yeah, the cost, it's only 375 bucks, guys, for a single person uh, or $725 for a couple. Uh, we are about 20% sold out. So if you're interested in coming, I would encourage you to sign up soon. As always, Thanks so much for sending these questions to me. Please send in more. I'm always happy to answer them. And everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. Okay, this next question is one that I, I sent to Nick Ferguson from someone that's, well, 
They're they're a bit over their head, um, and I think they're on the verge of making some really critical mistakes, and they need to stop and reevaluate what they're doing, pull back a little bit, and I thought maybe Nick would be the right person to kind of evaluate that and, and, and put it in some perspective. So with that, hey, Nick, take this one away, and thanks for doing extra this month. Hey guys, I'm back. Nick Ferguson answering another question for the expert council. And this one is by none other than Bruce Lee. I love your movies. Thank you for your question, Bruce. Um, I'm sure it's not really that Bruce Lee. Uh, anyways, he's got a long drawn out question full of details. Uh, and it's gonna kind of make it hard to really get a good answer because he's got a lot going on here. So let me start with saying, Bruce, you really need a consultant to help you figure out what to do for your situation. Um, I'll be able to give you some generalized information and guidelines, but there's a lot of complexity to your situation, a lot of tweaking and a lot of uh, min-max that you can do, and it'd probably save you thousands of dollars to get a professional to help you get a good plan together for how to move forward. But let's kind of break down the critical stats here. We've got two and a half acres of land in Colorado. It's been overgrazed before you got it. It's nutrient deficient, highly colloidal clay soils, it sounds like. It's very windy. You have three alpacas, a dozen chickens. And last year, it got mowed as well as chopped and dropped right before summer hit, which is the opposite time that you want to do that or else... What happened to you happens, it just sits on the ground and oxidizes and dries up and blows away. Uh, drainage is an issue. It makes lots of mud and breeds tons of mosquitoes. And the lowest point is a leach field. That's a big problem. <laughs> um, that's kind of crazy that they'd put the leach field down there. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that's actually the leach field because that would be a very, that would be the last place you'd want to put it. But I don't know. Again, I'm not there, can't look at it, so it's going to be hard to really nail this down to a really good answer that I feel comfortable with, but like I said, I'm going to give it my best shot. Um, added to the problems, there's a possible addition of two steers, maybe a couple pigs, and a half a dozen ducks. Uh, if you do that, your property is going to look like a feedlot, just so you know. Now, the only goal I know about is that you want to solve some poor drainage as well as get more water on the property to fix the dry clay problems during the summer. And those two goals are somewhat at odds with each other. And so are the larger livestock. If you have heavy clay soils, only two and a half acres of land, larger livestock, until you get things kind of squared away, I think are a bad idea. So I think we need to address the stocking density ideas and be practical about what the limits of the property are before adding any more animals to the mix. I would not stock all those animals on the best ground with perfect pasture and housing on sandy soils here in Louisiana. And the fact is that it's just way too much animal for what you have, especially when you're trying to fix the soils, especially when you have problems with mud and dried out soils in the first place. So, what I think you should do is to scale way back. Go small and slow, 
be light on the land, be intentional and careful about what you do. You have a host of issues that need careful attention or you will end up really regretting the results. I would keep the chickens, keep the ducks, do not get cows or pigs, consider getting some rabbits for your meat needs and build soil health and vitality in your soils so that you can build your pastures so that you can graze cattle. That's a very small amount of land to raise two steers up to butchering size anyways, let alone a couple pigs. Um, you'll probably benefit from installing a small pond with a swale attached and use that excavation to raise some soil up out of that seeming low area because you'll end up with a berm and that will help keep that a little bit drier, help moderate that water need and flow. You'll have a little pond attached to it so you won't have mosquito problems as much. You have the ducks to take care of the mosquitoes. That should all get taken care of if you do that. Um, but if you do that, you'll concentrate the water so it's more useful, promotes more diversity of life on the property, and you mulch those berms very thickly. You said you had a whole bunch of uh, shredded leaves. I would cover those berms with shredded leaves after your cover crop starts to come up, and I'd use something like a pea, iron and clay pea, uh, cow pea. Lots of, you know, there's tons of different things. I did an episode where I talked all about cover crops. You might want to check that out. But you get that your cover crop go, going and then mulch it lightly and you keep filling in mulch. Anywhere that you have bare soil either needs to be mulched or seeded. If seed won't take, put mulch on it. Um, get some good support species that you can use as chop and drop in a timely fashion. You should be chopping and dropping those branches in the fall or winter when precipitation exceeds evaporation. You want it to get in contact with soil and rot, cover the soil. You do not want it to dry out and oxidize above the soil. That's counterproductive. Like I said, there's a lot here to talk about, but that should get you pointed in the right direction and hopefully forestall a bigger problem. Thanks for the questions, guys. Be looking for cool new video class to be coming out in the near future from me. I've got a great knife-making class coming up that if you're interested in tools and making your own things, you will definitely want to check this out. But for more information about me, check out my website, homegrownliberty.com, and you can check out my podcast. We just did some episodes on setting up a nursery, as well as cover crops, mulching, raising goats, raising meat rabbits. Tons of topics have been covered, with more coming every week on Friday. To contact me, just send an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. That's N-I-C-K at homegrownliberty.com. Have a great day. Do good things. All right, great stuff from Nick. Lots of cool stuff coming from him and his efforts. It's cool to watch him starting to build his own thing. I definitely recommend you check out his podcast, again, at homegrownliberty.com. So I thought I would take a question. It wasn't really directly a question, but I get questions about this, or I, I see people tagging me and things on Facebook all the time about snakes. A lot of times it's like, what kind of snake is this and, and what have you. And I want to talk about a couple different things ending today because it's, it's, it's late spring. Some of you guys in the north, like you're not having your spring yet this year. But in the south, it's warm. The snakes are out moving around. And sooner or later, it's going to be warm everywhere. And if you live where snakes are, you will have snakes showing up. And if you keep, especially livestock like chickens and things like that, uh, you're more likely to see them either because of the rodents that associate with that or larger snakes They want to eat things like your eggs, or if you have babies, they'll eat your baby chicks, right? That's, that's what they're a threat to. They're not a threat to you in most instances. 
So what I want to make clear today is I'm really talking about non-venomous snakes here, and I'll probably say that more than I should because I don't want somebody going out and getting bit and being stupid following my advice but not following my advice and ending up in the ER with a bunch of crow fab pumped into you and a $40,000 bill. Because when I was bit by a snake almost 30 years ago now, not quite 30 years, 28-ish years ago, in the back of my calf, it was a copperhead. Uh, and if you're going to get bit by a venomous snake in the United States, it's probably, you know, they all suck, but to be the, the least worrisome, uh, my bill was over $15,000 for a day in the hospital, and that was that long ago. So most of the time, if you are bit by a venomous snake in the United States today, you are going to be fine overall, but the heartache, the pain, the agony, the misery, the inconvenience, and the expense is bad enough if not you know, also having, you know, uh, necrotic tissue and, and hemotoxin or neurotoxin in your body. You don't want that, okay? So I, I'm kind of separating this, but I do want to kind of point something out with the whole, well, what kind of snake is this? Is it poisonous? If they're not poisonous. They're venomous. But there are only four species of venomous snake in the United States of America. They are the coral snake, which is kind of its own little unique family, Everybody else is what's called a pit viper. We have copperheads, and we have, you either call them, depending on where you're from, water moccasins or cottonmouths, okay? And then we have rattlesnakes. Now, there are something like 38 different um, varieties of rattlesnake with, with families and subfamilies and things like that in, in the U.S. But the rattlesnake itself is a rattlesnake. Eastern Diamondback, Western Diamondback, Massager, Timber Rattler, they're rattlesnakes, and they look like rattlesnakes. And just because a snake makes a rattling sound, I just recently had a question from Kevin Keegan up in uh, up in uh, West Virginia about this. He found a black snake and it scared the hell out of him because it made a loud rattling sound, and it did it like on concrete. A lot of the rat snakes and bull snakes out there use mimicry. So if they're threatened, they'll puff their head up big like a venomous snake. They'll hiss, and they'll rattle the tip of their tail against something. They'll do it in leaves to make a rattling sound. They still don't look like a rattlesnake. And whenever you have a snake being threatening like that, this is what it's saying. Leave me alone. I don't want to bother you. Leave me alone. It's, 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 you know, and with non-venomous snakes, it's pretty much a bluff. Because they know they really have no ability to do anything. And even a venomous snake knows that big thing up there, I can bite it and hurt it, but it's probably going to kill me. The reptilian brain is not that sophisticated, but it is sophisticated enough to be a survival-minded brain. As an aside, today I'm outside filling up the duck pools. This is how smart a reptile can be. And lizards are a little smarter than snakes, but not much. All of a sudden, Dana, my cat, tears off up this oak tree with this like limb that goes out on a 45-degree angle. She ends up about 20 feet up in the oak tree, maybe 15, 20 feet, and she's trying to figure out how to get higher. And I'm like, what is she after? And I look, and there's a great big fence lizard, the gray and white ones with the blue bellies, okay? And he's up there, and as she's trying to figure out how to get up, he goes around the underside of the limb, and he, he crawls right underneath her on the bottom. of this limb about, you know, six inches in diameter. Craw crawls down, and she's still trying to figure out where he's at. He goes all the way to the bottom of the tree, goes up a tree next to her. He's about ten feet away, basically taunting the cat, Right, it's it's a it's a pretty sophisticated brain to even understand that 
that I'll go back up here and it can't get me, right? So, so snakes are not smart, and you, you, you can't, you know, this old thing, you can't trust the snake. You can trust the snake, but you trust it to behave like a, a, a low intelligence, low comprehension, non-compassionate reptile. You trust it to behave the way that it's supposed to behave, which means it doesn't rationalize. The, the snakes bite for two reasons and two reasons only, to eat something or to defend themselves. That's it. There's no other reason a snake would ever bite. Snakes do not bite out of malice. They do not bite out of anger. They do not bite out of anything other than defense because they're afraid or aggression because they believe that something is food. And as a keeper, I receive more than my share of bites from non-venomous snakes, working with them in caging by breaking the rules that I knew to follow because I knew they were small snakes that couldn't really do any harm. Like, a snake is in its hide, Okay, so your little hide container. You don't stick your hand in front of it if it's accustomed to being fed in its cage because it sees movement, it senses heat, it might reach out and tag you, right? Or an animal that's in getting ready to shed and its eyes are uh, opaque, sometimes if there's any kind of scent on your hand, they'll be less likely to identify you as the keeper and, and bite you. So snakes only bite for those two reasons. So let's keep that in our minds as well with all of this. So if they don't think they can eat you or they don't feel threatened by you, they're not going to bite you. Okay. Now, the venomous snakes, if we learn to identify specifically our three pit vipers, our cottonmouth, our copperhead, and our rattlesnake, and we know what they look like, and we learn the, the ones that live and what the colors look like of the ones that live in our area, and we see a snake and we identify it, and it's not one of those, it's probably okay. Now, the whole coral snake, red on black, good for jack, red on yellow, kill a fellow, all that stuff. If you don't know what you're doing, leave an animal alone, period. Okay? Or if it's in a place where you feel it's a threat, it's truly a threat, not it's a threat in your head, then, then use a effective means to dispatch it and kill it. And understand when you kill a venomous snake, like if you cut its head off, that head can still convulse and have uh, neurological reactions and still envenomate you. And if you're bitten by a dead snake or even the decapitated head of a, a dead snake, you're probably going to get a full load of venom. Because venomous snakes actually can control how much venom they use in an individual bite, and they do tend to try to conserve it. But if it's a convulsive death bite, you're probably getting a full pumped load, which makes a bad situation worse. So understand, even a dead snake can be dangerous. Okay, The best thing to do with a dead snake, especially a venomous dead snake, is to cut the head off and bury the head. I prefer that you don't kill snakes. I prefer if you don't know what you're doing, you leave them alone. But coming back to the non-venomous snakes. So if you have taught yourself enough to positively look at a snake and go, that's a rat snake, that's a garter snake, that's a black racer, that's a coach whip snake, right? That's a, a yellow rat snake. That's a, a red rat or also called a corn snake. You know what you're looking at. That's a bull snake, and you're positive. And it's on your property, and you'd like to remove it but you're not comfortable handling snakes, here's what you don't do. You don't go get a stick, a branch, a hoe that's had the hope thing pulled off and it like, looks like a hook or what have you, and pin its head to the ground, reach down and grab it behind the back of its head so it can't bite you, pick it up and take it wherever you're going to. Odds are, since you're afraid and you don't know what you're doing and this is why you're doing it, you are likely to harm the snake you are likely to harm a snake. That technique is usable, it's doable, 
if I'm in a certain situation with a larger snake and I prefer not to be bit by it, I might use it myself, but I'm very delicate with it. And most people who don't have training, you're going to push too hard, you're going to injure the snake. The other reason this is a problem is many snakes that can be actually handled with that won't bite you will try to bite you if you grab them behind the head. Here's why. Let's imagine that I expand my body and I grow up to 35 feet tall. I'm now 35 feet tall. I come walking up behind you. You're minding your own business catching some sun rays or something like that. I take a, a giant log. I pin your head to the ground with it. I reach down and grab you by the back of the neck and pick you up. What are you going to try to do? You're going to try to do whatever you can to hurt me so that I'll drop you and you, uh, you can get away. Because I'm a 30-foot tall giant and you're afraid of me. That's what you are to the snake. And by scale, you might be more like, you know, I don't know, a 50-foot, a 100-foot giant, depending on this animal. You also can hurt the animal because you're you, if you don't know what you're doing. So here's the easy solution. And again, this is for non-venomous snakes that you have properly identified. Because if you do this with a rattlesnake, a copperhead, or a moccasin, it will bite you and it will effectively envenomate you. Period. Okay? Just so you know, you get yourself a great big pair of welding gloves, okay? The ones that go like up to your elbows, thick, heavy leather welding gloves. You put them on, or one on really, is all you really need, and you go pick the snake up. You don't get all timid about it. You just reach down and grab the snake, and you grab it within, you know, 8 to 10 inches of its head. It, if, it's, if it's certain species, will do this, certain won't. It's going to whip around and try to bite you. And since the only thing it can reach, unless you stick it in your face, is the glove, it's going to bite the glove. When it bites the glove, the sum total of nothing is going to happen. The, the, no non-venomous snake in North America can penetrate a thick leather glove, period. The other thing you want to do is hold it away from your body so it can't get you somewhere else. But because what's coming next with most snakes, especially rat snakes, garter snakes, is a stinking, slimy poop. Because that's its other, like, I, I bit you? I can't get away, I'm going to stink you. That, that's how threatening these things are, that they crap on you to get away, okay? And then what's going to happen, if you're not rough with it, if you're gentle with it, it's going to kind of wiggle around, it's going to figure out it can't get away, and it's going to calm down. It's going to calm down and it's going to think, okay, biting didn't work, pooping didn't work, going kind of chill, or even some snakes will even feign that they're dead, like hognose snakes and some other snakes. Even I've seen black snakes kind of almost feign death. Like, maybe it'll let me go and I can get away. Or it'll ball up and protect its head. Because I, I've, I've bluffed all I can now. The giant is not letting me go. Then take it and have, if you, you have this constant issue, have a five-gallon bucket you keep for this somewhere where it's easy to get to. I say, put your gloves right inside it. Drill some holes in the lid, small holes. When you put the snake in the bucket and put the lid on it, don't, you know, don't ratchet it down like you're storing long-term food, just one on each side, clip you know, a couple spots on the lid, put the snake in the bucket, clip the lid on. Take the snake at least, a, I'd say a half a mile minimum, a mile is better from where you don't want the snake anymore, open the bucket, dump it on the ground, let it go. That's if you want to relocate the snake. That's how you do that. Now, how do I do it? If I find a large rat snake on my property... I do know that it is a threat mostly to my young ducklings if they're going to be, if I'm going to have young ducklings around. If it's a really big one, it may eat eggs, but it's, it's like that, it's not that big of a loss. I'd rather actually have a snake around that takes a cut. If it only ate eggs, 
If I'm not going to have any chicks, I'm not too worried about it because what it will do for me in the elimination of rodents, it makes it worth having it around. But if I'm having chicks around and stuff and I want that snake gone, what I do is I just go grab the snake by the tail and I use the body. And so if this, a lot of the times when you do that with a snake, some snakes are more aggressive than others. A lot of times, a lot of snakes will just kind of chill and try to figure out what's going on. And I've had completely wild, untamed snakes, rat snakes, bull snakes, etc. might hiss a little bit, and all of a sudden you just kind of pick them up in your hands, and they're crawling around on you. Because now you're not holding them. Now you're nothing but a, a tree that moves. Some of them are really pissy. And if they're pissy and they're trying to bite, what I do is I just take the, 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 the body of the snake, and as it's trying to bite me, I just use its own body against it, and I kind of play with it a while until it chills out. And then I just put it in a bucket and relocate it. That, I mean, that's, that's the reality. And by doing that and getting it Uh, you know, where you're holding it, you, well, you want to just kind of, it's hard to explain without video, but you either want to grab actually the tip of the tail or what I like to do actually is try to grab the snake kind of the backside a little bit like right behind the vent. So if it defecates, it's, it's coming to the backside of my hand. And usually when you handle them this way, they don't defecate because they know they're going to be more likely to defecate on themselves than what's got them. So you've got them by the tail. So it's called tail handling. And that would be the primary way that I'll handle snakes, depending on what we're talking about. If I have a hognose snake, which is a completely harmless thing that eats toads, that will puff up like a cobra, it'll act like a rattlesnake, but I've just never seen one bite other than a feeding error, error, error with a, a pet one, I uh, just pick them up. You pick them up and they just kind of, they, they're, they're ones that play dead. Like if you, they're fun actually. If you mess with them long enough, they'll do this whole rattlesnake thing and then they'll like raise their head up and they'll puff their head out. Like they look like a little cobra, like a fake cobra and they hiss and, and whatever. And if you stick your hand out and if they like, even if they actually touch you, they never even open their mouth when they bite you. And then eventually they just like give up and they just like roll over on their back and they open their mouth gaping like they're dead. And they just lay there. And a lot of times they'll also defecate then and leave a stink. Basically, I've died. There's nothing left. Go away. Leave me alone. I'm a dead stinking snake. You don't want me. So those I'll just pick up. Yellow racers. I've never been bit by a yellow racer. I'm not going to say that they don't. But I usually just grab them. Uh, a lot of times they'll wing around like they're going to bite you, but they don't. Um, coach whips will bite. They're very fast. Black racers will bite. They're very fast. I'm a little more tentative when I handle them. But pretty much I mostly will bare handle a snake. If it's in a position where it's easy to um, to do the head pin and I just want to get it done, I will often use uh, a branch to pin the snake down, but I don't use it like a poking stick. So it's not like a walking staff. We're using the end. I'll use it long ways across the snake's uh, head. And with larger snakes, I may do that. Because if you get bigger snakes, you can get you know enough of a wound that you might require a stitch or two, and I'd prefer not to do that. I've never had a snake bite me bad enough to do that. But this is what it takes. It takes discipline. So all these non-venomous snakes in North America, now a big boa, a big python, etc., they can do a serious laceration on you with a bite. Okay, But we don't have those here unless you're messing with a captive snake. right? Or you're going down to the Everglades where some of the pythons have escaped. And I hope you know what you're doing if you're doing that. You get bit by a rat snake, It doesn't even hurt, I promise you. It doesn't even hurt um, as long as you don't withdraw. If that snake goes to bite you and you just let it bite you, it'll kind of grab you and like, oh, this isn't working at all, and it'll let go. Now, it'll bleed. 
the teeth are amazingly sharp, which is a big part of why it doesn't hurt. They're also curved backwards. They're like little fish hooks without barbs. No, without barbs. The reason they're that way is because these snakes eat mostly birds and rodents, and they have no venom. So they grasp with their teeth, that holds the animal, and then they throw a coil around the, the, the prey, and they squeeze it to death. So they have to be able to hold it and control it long enough to actually, it's usually, people think it, it suffocates. Usually what happens is by the compression actually causes a cardiac concussion in the prey. So they have to have those teeth. So if they bite you and you jerk back, then it will hurt and it will bleed a lot more and it will, it will be more like a tear than a puncture wound. A very shallow, very, very, very shallow puncture wound. When you're bit by a snake like this, what happens is it bleeds a lot, but it's not really a lot. It just looks like a lot. You wipe it away, there's almost nothing there, little dots, and then it just like bleed again. Kind of like getting really shallow like glass scratch cuts or something like that, or a really light abrasion, that, and, and it just, it's you know, basic first aid, and don't worry about it. The exception, water snakes, which if you get bit by a water snake, you jacked with it, okay? So not everything swimming in the water that's dark colored is a water moccasin. It really isn't. Most of it is not. Um, I talk to rednecks around here all the time. There's moccasins all over back in that cove. And you take your boat back there and you go, yeah, green water snake, diamondback water snake, diamondback water snake, diamondback water snake, green water. Not one is a moccasin. But they eat fish. Their teeth are longer. And some of the species have pretty significant ability to, to get a little bit deeper puncture because they've evolved that way to grab onto something like a slimy fish and hold on to it. But you have to go out of your way to jack with one of those things to get it to bite you. Now, they'll do it, but and they'll really poop you up, too. The, uh, the diamondback water snakes and uh, the green water snakes are just... Blah, Just putrid when they when they do their defensive pooing. Uh, there's also a banded water snake. We used to call them a water band as a kid. They're a little bit easier to deal with, and they don't get quite as big. So, I mean, the big thing is just not to be concerned about this that to that great of a deal, and to understand that a snake has this very kind of low-functioning reptilian brain. It, it only knows certain things. I don't want to be too cold, and I don't want to be too hot. I don't want to be exposed because everything that, that's out there that's bigger than me will eat me. I need food. I need a place to hide. I'm looking for, at certain times of the year, a mate. Once I've mated, if I'm a female, I need a place to go either bear live young or lay eggs. And snakes do both, depending on the species. And I, I just don't want to be bothered. That, that's really how snakes work, venomous or otherwise. That said, venomous snakes can cause serious, life-threatening injury. And I'll tell you, go full circle here, I will work with venomous snakes. We call them hots in the industry. This is how I work with a venomous snake. If I have put my hand on it, I have done something wrong. I'll use hooks, I'll use clamps, and I'll use net bags and net frames. And you to remove a snake like that, you either use a clamp or a hook. You put the bag behind the snake, and because the snake wants to hide, most of them, this is U.S.-centric, okay? There are much more denural or daytime predator-like snakes that are much faster uh, in other countries, like mambas and things like that, that, that behave differently. We have in this country, except for corals, which I'll cover a little tiny bit at the end, we have pit vipers. They are extremely fast, striking snakes. 
Never let their kind of lethargic look to how they move make you believe that they are not lightning fast with their ability to strike. Okay, But their ability to move, not so fast. Okay, The bigger they are, actually the more lethargic and easier to handle. You put the bag behind them, you take the clamp or the hook, you put them into the bag. You spin the bag around about three or four times in a circle and you tie it off. And then you tie it off a second time. And then you don't sling it over your shoulder so it bites you in the back, and you take it away to wherever it needs to go. If you put your hands on it, you are either a zookeeper, uh, a scientist doing a venom work or something like that, uh, a, a vet providing care, or you're stupid. There's just no reason to put your hands on the snake, other than to look cool or try to prove you're a badass or something like that or what have you. There's just no reason for it. And that's why I've handled venomous snakes multiple times. The very first time I worked with a venomous reptile, I was nine years old. I've been bit once, and it wasn't while I was working with a reptile. It was when I stepped over a tree and landed flat on the back of a, a copperhead, and it bit me. I just didn't see it. I didn't know he was there. I didn't blame him for biting me. I would have bit me too. I was the 50-foot giant standing on your back. All you can do is bite. So you bite so you let go. Okay, so... This doesn't have to be dangerous. And on the coral snakes, coral snakes are generally very small snakes. They are the only snake in, in our region, the United States of America, that are, is part of the same family as, as cobras. Their venom is, is neurotoxic. It can be quick or slow acting. The problem with that is people can be bit, think they're okay, and a day later get really sick. I saw this happen to a fellow soldier in Panama who did not even know he had been bitten. Okay, because it's a very passive bite. That was also a legitimate bite. It's the only legitimate bite I've ever actually heard of with a coral snake. Coral snakes are small snakes, especially the species we have in North America. I've they get bigger. I've never seen one beyond two feet, though. I've never seen one. Um, they generally need a small area of the body to get to you. They are rear-fanged, so they have to get a good bite in to, to be able to get any venom in. If you get bit by a coral snake, though, it is very, very serious. But they're very docile, so docile that many people that keep them barehand them all the time and handle them like, like they're, they're harmless because they're so hesitant to bite in most instances, especially a captive-raised one that's dealt with. This is stupidity. And if it happens to that person and they get bit, they deserve what they got for being stupid. But yes... Red on black is there's various forms of king snakes that have a mimicry of corals. And if red touches black, you're good. Red touches black, good for Jack, right? Red touches yellow, kill a fellow. Here's the thing. The milk snakes that we have in the United States, if we leave out things like Sinaloan milk snakes that come out of Central America, they don't have full wrapping bands anyway. They have saddles and things like that. There is no snake that lives in the wild in North America unless it escaped from Petco that really looks like a coral snake anyway. They, they just don't. The one exception and the closest to uh, full mimicry in the U.S. is various forms of what's called the Scarlet King. That's the only one that really in any way would look like a coral snake. And just straight up, coral snakes have a black snout. Scarlet kings have a red snout. The nose alone tells you right there. Um, to me, they don't really look alike. Now, I've spent my whole life working with snakes, so 
I guess maybe to me it's different because I know what to look for. But Scarlet Kings, even when they look like they're fully banded, they're more of a saddle to them. Um, they're also kind of uneven, where Coral Snakes, that yellow is a very even ring in between each thing. It looks like it was almost painted. So they're, they're difficult to not tell apart. But, you know, this is the thing, if you're not sure, leave it alone. Coral snakes are very secretive, very calm. And if you look up king snakes, especially U.S. king snakes and coral snakes, it doesn't take much to be able to tell the two of them apart. So it's another reason that you don't really need to fear. And the truth is, I've seen very few, very few, and I used to be a guy that people would call and go, hey, there's a snake here, come get it. I've seen very few coral snakes actually found in the wild around Texas or Florida even though they're there, because they just don't want to be found. In the end, I never really fault anybody for killing a snake, because if you don't know, it could be dangerous, and if it's somewhere that it actually could pose a threat to you or others, I understand. This is what I don't like. I don't like people that kill snakes in ignorance. Only good snakes are dead snakes. They're all dangerous. Blah, blah, blah. The Bible says kill them, whatever. It's just stupidity. Please don't be that person. Please don't think that any living creature deserves death just because it exists. It was here before you. And if we keep going on the way we're going as a species, they may damn well be here after us, too. Um, they're just a reptile. And they're a simple creature that asks very little in return from humanity. Pretty much, you know, what they ask for is the warmth of the sun for a mate, for a place to hide, and for the ability to eat animals that we prefer weren't around our homes. That's that's just not much to ask for. They can be a threat to livestock, flat out. There's a picture of Facebook today that kind of sparked, you know, sparked me doing this segment here at the end of one lady caught it in the chicken coop with its mouth stretched around an egg. By the way, great time to grab that snake and get rid of him. You wait till that egg's about three-quarters of the way down. He can't get it the rest of the way down. He can't get it up. You just pick him up, put him in the bucket, throw the lid on him somewhere else. Big rule, though. Big rule. Mile. One mile, or it will probably end up right back where it was that you didn't want it, because there's some reason it was there in the first place. And then be aware of this. When you relocate a problem, If you don't think really hard about where you relocate it to, you relocate your problem and make it somebody else's problem. So if you go a mile down the road and pitch it over a fence, and you got a neighbor down there with livestock, you've just relocated your problem. All right? So think about where you relocate it. And then finally, in some states, everything I've told you so far might be illegal. You know, do what you think is right, but also do it within the knowledge of what is legal and what isn't legal, and be smart about it. And last but not least, if you are not professionally trained and mentored and you touch a venomous snake, I would say from my experience on average, you have a 25 to 50% chance of getting bitten. And you have almost a 0% chance of getting bitten by a venomous snake if you don't jack with it. To make my point, even though I have been the victim of a legitimate bite, and even though I've seen plenty of them, over 90% of snake bites by venomous snakes in the United States of America occur to young males between the age of 15 and 30, and most of them are either on the hands or the lower forearms. 
That should tell you everything you need to know about how dangerous snakes really are in the United States. We are not Australia. We do not have taipans crawling around. We do not have red-bellied black snakes crawling around. We do, we're not India. This is not a place full of Russell's vipers where you go to, to reach into your wood pile and you get bit by one of the most deadly snakes on their continent. This is not those places. So if you live somewhere else, you're thinking, oh, he doesn't know how bad it is. I know. I know what fertilances are like. I spent enough time in Central America. I don't ever want to see a fertilance again. Those things are psychotic. Okay, In our nation, it is a pretty safe place snake-wise. And give them a lot, you know, give them some freedom and go on. So that's like a mini snake show today because we had a short uh, dugout for the expert council. With that, do consider supporting my show by joining the member support brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And if you don't want to be a member or if you already are but you want to do more, Remember, you can shop T-S-P-A-Z, that's T-SPAZ. Just go to T-SPAZ.com. You'll end up at Amazon.com. Whenever you're going to buy something from Amazon, just go there first. And we'll get credit for the sale, and it doesn't cost you any more money. Type in one less letter. How cool is that? It's really a good idea. If you love the show, it helps us continue the show for you. Uh, next up, you know that the TSP Business Directory was a sponsor of the day today, so I won't belabor what the directory is all about. But we do always try to feature every day one company who's supporting the directory, and you too can be featured on the show eventually by supporting the directory for as little as five bucks a year. Today's supporter is Tactical Redneck Equipment. They provide both fun and practical gear for those times you need to add a little redneck to your tactical kit. Check them out on the TSP Business Directory. I'll have a link in today's show notes. And, of course, their website is tacticalredneck.com. That's cool. I'm going to check them out. I didn't know they were part of the directory. I just want to see kind of what they got going on. I bet you do too. Uh, with that, uh, we're ready to wrap things up. Today's song of the day. I, I was thinking about this is Friday doing kind of a fun song, but, you know, with the, the whole snake soliloquy here at the end, I, I, I think about how we as, as people sometimes look at things that we don't understand And we see them as dangerous because we don't understand them, or mythologically they're supposed to be dangerous, or somebody has taught us that they're dangerous, so we just accept that they're dangerous. And then we turn around and things that are really dangerous, like the people that run our country and see it as okay to bomb the shit out of foreign nations just because they're not doing what we want them to do at any given time. Those people are dangerous, and yet we seem to just accept it as being just the way things are, and it's okay because unlike the snake, it's not in our backyard. But what if we were on the other side of that? And I'm not saying that every time military action is taken, it's wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I think that's the extreme of any position is usually wrong in either direction. Okay, But th there is no doubt that, that we have become a warmongering society. And our, our solution when we're not getting what we want out of, of other people is war. And we're usually convinced as, as a society that it's justified through propaganda and through misleading information, and then often through the truth as well. So we take the truth that's bad, that, that really is bad stuff going on over in this place. And those people really are dangerous, okay? But it's not enough for the United States people, the average person, to say, yeah, let's go bomb that country, let's go invade that country. We're, we're naturally peace-loving people. I, I really believe that. But then we add propaganda on top of the truth. We add agitation on top of the truth. We add false information on top of the truth. And then we end up getting enough public will to go do something. And we are manipulated by the people that are truly dangerous. 
That's what today's song's about. It's by Pink Floyd. It's called Dogs of War. And I'll tell you, when I was a kid, and I was driving around my sports car, I was a teenager, driving around my, my 455 Pontiac, you know, quad, uh, Rochester Quadrajet, and just tearing up the road with it, you know. I, uh, I used to t put, this is one of the songs I'd put on and just jam it and drive too fast and reckless and whatever. And I thought it was just an awesome song. It sounded so cool. I didn't get the meaning at all. I never really listened to the words. All I got was dogs of war, you know, right? Uh, yeah, you know, especially a guy that was going to join the military. Now when I hear the words, I understand the true meaning and the manipulation. But it's still a great sounding song at the same time. With that, give it a listen. Maybe actually hearing the words, the lyrics for the first time. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Man.